a seat. My name's Chris. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm so excited to be here. So excited about what the Lord's doing um, here at your church. And uh, how many of you, this is your church home? This is your church home, so like 90% of the room. I heard some of you guys um, maybe drove a couple of hours to be here. So how many of you from other churches in the room right now? Awesome. Thank you guys for being here. Can we uh, welcome everybody in the room? Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and um, many years ago, I say many years ago, about 10 years ago, I was the director of men's discipleship at Lifeway, and so got to travel and do um, things like this a pretty, pretty good bit of time. Uh, and uh, so it's an honor to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. So um, I was a pastor for many years, served at, at Lifeway as a consultant for several years. Now uh, I own a, a couple of businesses in the Nashville area and, um, you know, get to serve at my church and preach when my pastor's not there and things like that and travel and speak some too and work for an organization called discipleship.org, uh, give part of my time to that organization. And so, uh, man, it's just an honor for me to be here from Nashville and to celebrate what the Lord's doing in your hearts tonight. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5, that's where we're going to look tonight, 1 Peter chapter 5, um, and while you're turning there, uh, let me remind you of something that happened on December 8th, 1941. December 8th, 1941, um, the president convened a joint session um, of Congress, President Roosevelt, and uh, he gave this speech that was probably the shortest speech of his presidency, but was maybe the most significant speech of his presidency. It was seven minutes long, and uh, it was kind of keynoted by this one line, and this one line's familiar. Here's what he said. He said, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, is a date that will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the empire of Japan. Now, about eight decades later, what military tacticians will say is that that's still one of the greatest examples of the power of the element of surprise in the history of military combat. It was when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And, and most of you know this, it was a sneak attack. Like with, with, with barely any warning, if any warning at all, at about 8 a.m. on that particular morning, 353 Japanese aircraft, along with some of their naval forces, launched an attack that lasted about 110 minutes. But in the short span of time, the 110 minutes, 188 American uh, aircraft were destroyed. Eight battleships were completely incapacitated. Um, it sunk uh, four, um, uh, four more battleships, killed about 2,000 Americans, and wounded about 1,100 more. And here's what I want you to know about that attack on the base at Pearl Harbor. It proves this one thing. It's this, that it is possible to have a superior force, and yet if you are not on guard, you can be defeated. It's possible to have a superior force, and yet, if you're not on guard, you're not ready for the attack, you can be um, defeated. And so that's really what I want to talk about tonight. Because whether you realize it or not, guys, we're, we're all in a spiritual battle, are we not? We're all in a spiritual battle. And what the Bible says, the Bible's very explicit uh, that our enemy has a mission. And that mission is he wants to steal, kill and destroy everything about your life. And here's the deal. If we're not ready, if we're not on guard, if we're not expecting the attacks and know what to do with the attacks, it won't just be a battle. 
it'll be a massacre. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, and I want to really talk about um, five attacks on the souls of men. I think you'll see this as we begin to unpack the text a little bit tonight. Five attacks on um, the souls of men. Now, let me give you a little background on 1 Peter. So Peter uh, writes this letter to a group of people known as the Diaspora. They were Christians who were um, dispersed um, all throughout Asia Minor because of persecution on the church in that day. They had experienced things like their children being taken from their homes and taken into the Colosseum and fed to lions as kind of like a pre-show um, before the gladiator, uh, the, the gladiator games. Um, Christians were um, impaled onto stakes in something called Nero's Circus and slathered in tar and lit on fire to light up the night sky to celebrate what the Roman Empire was trying to do to eradicate Christianity. Um, to say that they were facing intense persecution and intense physical attacks and spiritual attacks would be an understatement. And so Peter writes this whole book of 1 Peter to, like, to these people to say, look, here's how you endure all of that stuff that you're facing. Then he gets to the end of the book of 1 Peter, and he turns his attention in chapter 5 to the men. Really, he talks to the younger men and then to the elders. And I want to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, and I want to show you, again, five attacks on the souls of men. First, look at verse 6. He says, very clearly and very simply, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Now, it's no accident that Peter starts this whole little um, discourse that, that I want to call five attacks on the souls of men by talking about humility. Uh, what Peter's saying is really, I think, the number one way the enemy attacks us is pride. The number one way the enemy attacks us is pride. And here's what I want to say to you. The root of a lot of your stress, the root of a lot of your anxiety, the root certainly of the sin in your life is the issue of pride. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I love this quote, he said this. He says, unchastity, anger, drunkenness are merely flea bites in comparison. Pride is the big one, C.S. Lewis says. Pride is the number one issue we got to wrestle with, men. C.S. Lewis says, he says, pride leads to every other vice. Now, let me just, you know, make it super simple. Pride, very simply, is when I'm focused on me being the center of my universe, right? When I'm focused on what I want and my pleasure and my happiness above everything else in life. And I don't know if you're anything like me. I, I do this all the time. And I think you do too. In fact, I was thinking about this on the drive over from Nashville today, and I thought about um, this fall. I was at a high school football game. My daughter, as a senior in high school, her boyfriend plays for our local high school team. And uh, I was at their game, and they've got this little pop-up stand where they sell, they, they call them mini donuts, and they're exactly there. They're these little tiny deep-fried donuts, and they'll sell them like in a, in a dozen little, little package that you can go get the ball games. And so I'm standing in line, the line's really, really long, long enough that I could hear the lady behind me who had to be at least in her 80s. Um, she was not moving very well. She was, you know, really slow. Didn't have, I don't know why I just did the walker. She wasn't on a walker, but she was moving really slow. Uh, and, but she was standing behind me, and we're standing there forever waiting in line for the mini donuts. So finally, we get up to, to order, and I order my little package of mini donuts, and then you kind of move over to the side 
where you wait on them to fulfill your order. So her name was Janice behind me. Janice places her order. Yes, ma'am. Okay, what's, what's your name? Janice. You know, so we, Janice and me, we stand over here together, and she's having a hard time standing this long waiting on the mini donuts. And literally, I mean, it was probably 15 minutes of us waiting. We're missing the game. She was behind me. Remember this. Well, finally, they start calling names out, and they get to Janice's before my. I'm getting frustrated because they haven't called my name yet. Then they get to Janice's before mine. I was like, for real? Seriously? Right? Even though Janice is like 85 years old and having trouble standing, and I'm perfectly fine to stand there and wait till the end of the game if I needed to. But I got so angry at this little 85-year-old lady who had nothing to do with when she received her order of the mini donuts because I had made myself the center of my life and my own happiness and my own desires the center of my life. And what Peter's saying here in this passage is that what the enemy is trying to do every day of your life is he's trying to work really hard to make you believe that life is all about you. He wants you to think that everything in the world should orbit around you. And when he gets you to believe that, what will happen is it'll make you miserable. And you, because you believe that, will make everybody else miserable around you. Because if they're all like secondary characters and you're the hero of the story, then what you desire from them is that they fulfill your hopes and dreams. And when they don't, it makes you frustrated and angry. And in turn, it's going to make them miserable. Right? Pride makes you miserable, makes everybody miserable around you. And some of you are here tonight and you're letting the enemy convince you that you're the center of your universe. You don't realize you're doing that. So many times I don't realize I'm doing that, but we do it all the time, and it's making the people um, around us miserable. Now, here's what's hard about pride. Pride's really easy to see in other people. (laughs) It's really hard to see in yourself. And so here's what I want to do real quick. I want to give you just a real quick pride test. Is that okay? And so what I want you to do, I'm going to read off some questions, and I want you to rate yourself. So for every one of these that you would say, yes, that's me, I'll just give yourself one point, okay? And we're going to see how we score this at the end, okay? Okay, um, so number one, do you long for a lot of attention? Do you long for a lot of attention? Number two, do you become jealous or critical when other people succeed? Number three, do you always have to win? Ooh. Do you always have to win? Are you often afraid that the real you will be exposed, that the real you will be exposed. Um, Do you have a hard time acknowledging that you were wrong? Uh, When somebody confronts you and, and, and you know that you're wrong, does it make you squirm and uncomfortable? Do you have a hard time acknowledging when you're wrong? Do you have a lot of conflicts with other people? Conflicts with other people. Do you often cut in line? At the store, in traffic, whatever it is. Do you get upset when other people don't notice or honor your achievements? Do you tend to feel more entitled or thankful? Entitled or thankful. Do you honestly feel, honestly, like we may not ever admit this, but do you honestly feel that you're superior to other people? Now, here we're going to score it, all right? You got your, got your number? We're going to score it. If you scored a 1 to 10, 1 to 10, you're a prideful person, okay? If you scored a 1 to 10, you're a prideful person. If you scored a 0, 
You're a really prideful person, all right? You're really prideful. Um, but what Peter does in this passage is he says, look, we're all, we all struggle with it. We all wrestle with pride. We all wrestle with making ourselves the center of our worlds and making the people around us miserable, stiff-arming other people. We, we all struggle with it. And so in this passage, he says, humble yourself. He says, stop being prideful. <laughs> the, the Greek word is tenothete. It's tenothete in Greek, and it literally means make yourself low to the ground. Tenothete, make yourself low to the ground. In other words, wake up in the morning and remind yourself the world is not all about you. There's something that's more important than you are. Remind yourself the world's not all about you. Theno, tenothete. See, what Peter's saying here, I think, is this, that humility is not something that you back into or happen into or just kind of mosey passively through life and all of a sudden you become humble, <laughs> right? It's not something you back into. It's an active verb, tenothete, something that you choose to do, that you actively do. So um, here's the thing with pride. That's the first one that Peter starts with, and I, I think it's intentional because pride always gives way to other sins, always. So verse 7, look what he says. He says, casting all your cares upon him because he cares about you. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares about you. Now, <clears throat> I, I, I'm not going to get into all the theology of this verse. We often talk about this verse in the context of anxiety. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And, and, and certainly... Anxiety is significant in this particular verse. What most theologians will say about this verse is what Peter's actually doing is he's talking about our identity. He's talking about our identity. And there's a whole lot of background underneath this verse that I don't have time to talk about tonight. But theologians say that he's talking about our identity. So the second thing that I want to tell you tonight that's an attack on the souls of men is he attacks your identity. He attacks your identity. Now, Here's, here's why I think Peter does this, and I, why, why I think it's connected to anxiety. Because what we find our identity in has a direct correlation to the degree of anxiety we feel. What we find our identity in has a direct correlation to the degree of anxiety that we feel. In other words, just think about it for a second. I mean, practically, if um, you find your identity in being successful, like I've climbed the corporate ladder or I'm climbing quickly the, the corporate ladder or whatever it is, then you'll feel anxiety and it's specifically the anxiety of I feel the constant pressure to perform at the highest level because that's my identity. I'm successful. And when you can't be successful or when you're not ascending the corporate ladder quickly enough, you'll feel anxiety. Um, if your identity's in money, then you'll feel, man, the, the constant churn of trying to make more and more and close a bigger deal and invest in the better stock, and it'll create anxiety when those things don't happen. If your identity is being liked or being approved by people, someone not liking you creates major anxiety in your life. Younger men in the room, when you don't get the number of likes on the Instagram or the TikTok or whatever the thing is that you're doing, it creates anxiety um, in your life. And what happens then as a result is it causes us as men to not have a backbone. If your identity is in how people like you or how they approve of you or don't approve of you, you won't have a backbone. 
So it creates this incredible degree of anxiety. Um, we, what we find our identity in has a direct correlation to the degree of anxiety that we feel. And when you find your identity in something other than what you were created for, it will always, always, always lead you to anxiety and emptiness. And so if you're experiencing right now like an anxiety in your life, when I hear somebody, when, when someone comes to me at my church and says, I'm experiencing a high degree of anxiety, what should I do about it? My first question is always something related to identity to help unpack what they're finding their identity in. It leads to an anxiousness and an emptiness. In fact, I want to show you a video, and it's an older video, but I think it's something that you can relate to. And we all know who Tom Brady is, and this is a video of Tom Brady more than a decade ago. Uh, but I think the pattern that you're going to see in his life in this video is something that's really played out in a different way if you know his story really over the last year or two. But I want you to see and think about as you watch this what he's finding his identity in. All right, check this out. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, it's, I think that's part of me experiencing trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a, I know, I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find and different ways of expression and being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with, with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. Did you hear what he said? He's won all these Super Bowl rings. Going to go down as the greatest quarterback in the history of the world. And he says what? There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than finding my identity in being the greatest football player in the world. And this is what Peter's saying when he says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. There's this whole backstory of what Jesus does when Jesus, Peter had quit after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And he goes back to fishing and Jesus comes and meets him. And he restores him and he reminds him of where his identity is. And what theologians will say without going into the whole backstory is this is why Peter uses a fishing term. Because when Jesus finds Peter and restores him and reminds him who his identity is, that it's really with Jesus. It's not back in his previous life or in some other career or something else. It's really with Jesus. Um, what theologian, he, when, when Jesus does that, he finds Peter fishing. And he brings him out of fishing and he reminds him, hey, no, no, your identity is not this thing. Your identity is to fish for men. That's who I've made you to be. It's a greater identity than what you're currently living. And so what theologians will say is, this is why Peter uses the term casting. That's a fishing term. Cast your cares on him. Because what Peter has in his mind when he's talking about this in this passage is we're always going to experience anxiety and emptiness when we don't find our identity in Christ. And so men, I want to ask you, what are you finding your identity in? Are you feeling an emptiness in your life? Are you feeling an anxiety in your life? 
Could it be because your identity is something besides being a son of the king, being a follower of Jesus? It's our primary identity. So that's the second thing, um, identity. Number three is passivity. The third attack on the souls of men is passivity. Um, in verse 8, the beginning of it, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, be sober. Be on the alert. Be sober. Be on the alert. This is military language, okay? Uh, some translations will say, watch out. Some will say, stand on watch. Some say, uh, be sober-minded, stay alert, be on guard. So what's the context? Well, in fortified cities, cities with walls around them, strong men would stand on the walls and they would watch. They would be on guard. They would be sober. They would be on the alert for enemies that might come and attack. Now, they weren't being on guard necessarily even for their lives. They were stewarding their lives to be on guard and be on the alert for the people that were behind them inside those walls. And so what Peter says is be on guard and avoid, reject passivity. See, God's called us for the exact same thing, right? As men, he's given us a very high calling to, to, to steward our masculinity, to steward our strength, to be on guard for our wives, for our children, for our homes, to be on guard for our churches and the unity in our church, the health of our church, to be on guard, to be sober-minded and alert, to be on guard for the mission of Christ in the world, to not be passive, but to be sober-minded and active. Basically what, what Peter's saying here is tune in. Don't go to sleep at the wheel, but tune in to what I've called you to. Some of us in the room Man, we've gone passive. We've gone passive on our wives. We've gone passive on our children. And what's happening is we've gone passive with our wives. You're not pursuing the heart of your wives the way you once did. And she's being devoured by the enemy. You're not pursuing your kids. And, and, and spiritually leading your kids the way the Lord's called you to. And so they're being devoured by the enemy. And so what Peter says is be sober-minded. Wake up. Basically, he says, wake up, tune in. And I want to tell you, if you don't, the enemy's going to wreck your life. Um, about uh, 10 years ago, I was um, the executive pastor um, at a really large church in the Nashville area. And um, I, was, I was preaching a lot of Sundays also at one of our campuses, but, but the executive pastor of, of the organization. And, um, and you know, I, I had had so much pride in my life because of the ascension of my career to, to get into that role. I come from a really small town in Alabama. I'm no, no joke, like our church on Sunday mornings was probably about 70 people on a good day. And so to be the executive pastor of a church with five campuses on three continents, it, it, that's really large. And it, I, I had let all of that, I'm not telling you any of that to say how great Chris is. I, quite the opposite, actually. Um, I had let all of that go to, full, to fill my pride and my ego. And to try to keep up that identity, I worked my fingers to the bone to try to be like the cool pastor that had arrived in Nashville, an it city or whatever. You know, I, I tried to work so hard to keep up that identity. And I worked so hard that I was empty inside in a lot of ways. And I didn't realize it, 
but, but I was medicating that emptiness in several different ways. One of those was, man, I, on, I would preach on Sunday mornings at a, at a mega church in Nashville after having on Saturday night looked at porn for two hours. Not really praying before I'd get up to preach. Man, I had gone passive. And I'll never forget the Monday morning in March of that year when my wife walked in. She knew about some of that stuff. Not all of it, some of it. She walked in and she said, in tears, you need to sit down. I was like, why? She said, you need to sit down. <laughs> and when our wife gets, that, you know, gets that when they get that direct with us, we sit down. And so I sat down on the couch. And uh, she knelt in front of me, in front of the couch, tears streaming down her face. And she said, I think our marriage might be done. I can't even tell you guys how broken I was in that moment. It, it, it changed everything about my life. It took the Lord getting me to that point in my life to realize how passive I had really gotten. See, I'd gotten so active in serving Jesus' bride <laughs> that I had failed to serve my own bride and to actively pursue her. And that's my first ministry. We always say it as pastors, like, I don't ever want to sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. I totally did it. I said I wouldn't. I totally did it. And I gave myself to other things. And it was all because I had gone passive. Rather than being sober-minded, being on the alert. And some of you right now, the enemy is literally waiting at your door to devour your entire family and to destroy your life. And if something doesn't change to break you, like I, the Lord gave me the grace to, 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 to make me a broken man that day, and I'm so thankful for that. It hurt really bad. But I'm so thankful for it. By the way, the, the Lord has redeemed my marriage and it's healthier now than ever. And so I'm so thankful for that. But, but some of us are right at that point where, where man, we're, we're ruining our lives with passivity. The enemy is coming for you. And maybe you're so passive you, you don't even realize it. And so Peter in this passage says, tune in. Tune in and reject passivity. Um, in fact, there, there are a couple ways that I want to tell you that you can actually do this. You can reject passivity. Um, one of those is prayer. I mean, that's it's obvious. That's obvious. If you just devote yourself to prayer, what science has now proven is what the Bible has told us for thousands of years. And that is that prayer will change things in your life. Now, we know that's true. But science has proven. I found this. I love this so much. Like brain science fascinates me. I found this um, from Dr. Caroline Leaf. She wrote a book called Switch on Your Brain. And here's what she said. She found, she's not even a Christian, by the way. She said, 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight-week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. You want to actively improve your life? <laughs> this non-Christian neuroscientist has said, start praying regularly every day. Just actively say, I'm going to pray. Um, there's another... Um, she's a clinical social worker, or he is. His name's Larry Devers. And he said this. He said, serving others. So we talked about prayer, now serving. He says, serving others increases your appreciation for the positives in your life and alters your perspective of your circumstances. You can improve your sense of self-worth even by just serving other people, is what Larry Devers said. So you want to reject passivity 
and, and, and be sober-minded, be active, be on the alert. Commit yourself to serving other people, to serving your wife, to serving your kids, to serving your church. And this non-Christian brain scientist is said to pray. It works, she says. Okay, passivity. Next, look at verse 8 again. He says, be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone he can devour. He's talking about isolation here. Talking about isolation. Think about it for just a second. Um, Peter paints this picture of the enemy prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, right? Now, imagine you're watching Animal Planet for just a second, and you see the show about these lions that are attacking a herd of water buffalo or whatever it is, all right? Uh, Which water buffalo is the lion going to attack? Right. Men, every time I've ever used this illustration, people always say the weakest. It's not the weakest. It's the one that's isolated. Because of the herd mentality of animals like water buffaloes, what they'll actually do is they'll actually surround the weakest one to protect them. So which one does the lion attack? The one that's isolated. Boy, what a great picture of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. What Peter's saying is, you want to be attacked by the enemy? You want the enemy to sink his teeth deeply in you? Isolate yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. He says, the more isolated a person is, um, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And other, what, what he's about to say is, when you isolate yourself, it starts a snowball effect. That's what he's about to say. Um, the more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in sin, the more de- disastrous is his isolation. Think about that for just a second. If you're isolated, he says, causes you to sin more. When you sin more, causes you to isolate more. <laughs> right? And it gets worse and worse and worse. Think about David. We all know David's story, don't we? David was a king. You know, people were away at war. At the time, he was surrounded by, you know, his, his, his mighty men and by Jonathan. He was at his best. He was a warrior. But the time he was isolated away from his mighty men, away from his guys on a roof, sees this woman who's beautiful, and he made the biggest mistake of his life, Right? See, isolation is always the story of someone whom the enemy has sunk his teeth deeply into. And then so many of us are notorious, uh, me included, for thinking, look, 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 I know I got this sin issue. I got it. I can tame it. I can take care of it. You can't. I can't. We weren't created to. We were created out of community for community. Right? Like we weren't created to have it on our, on our own. And so I want, here's what, the question I want to ask you. Who really knows you? Right, like, who do you have in your life? I, would call, I always call them 2 a.m. friends. That if you blow your life at 2 a.m., you could call and go, man, I need you. Who, who do you have in your life that knows you struggle with porn on Saturday nights? Who do you have in your life that knows you're really struggling with the way you talk to your wife? Do you... Do you have somebody in your life that's not just guys in your Sunday school class that know that, you know, you've memorized a large portion of Romans chapter 9 or whatever it is? But no, not that they just know that, but do they, do they know 
the struggles you have? Do you have men who really know you in your life? See, what I think Peter's calling us to here is to something that I call courageous vulnerability. To have men in your life who don't know Pastor Chris, who know Chris, and the struggles that Chris really has. We need men with whom we go below the line of shame. See, we all have this, throw that graphic up, we all have this um, line in our lives that I call the line of shame, and above that line are things that we're willing to talk about with pretty much anybody. How was the game last night? Who you, who you got in the Super Bowl? How, you know, how are things? Whatever it is. Below the line of shame are things that we're afraid to go there with somebody else because we're afraid if we go there, that person will absolutely reject me. And, and what we need is people in our lives that we can go below the line of shame with in courageous vulnerability. Men who would go, look, 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 look I'm in the battle with you. I'm struggling with you. I don't reject you, right? I, one guy thinks that's awesome. Thank you for that, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm, we're in it together, right? Um, first Peter, oh, first Peter, um, first John. Walk in the light, he is in the light. We often think that means walk without sin. Walk in the light means walk without sin. It doesn't mean walk without sin. It means walk without secrets. See, to walk in the light means to walk without secrets, right? Because sin, it's, it's like a fungus. It grows in the dark, but it dies in the light. And so we need men in our lives that we go below the line of shame and courageous vulnerability with that shine light into the corners of our hearts where the enemy might be attacking and we, where we're hiding sin. You have to have that. You have to. If you don't have that, the enemy will sink his teeth deeply into you. It's not a matter of will he, it's a matter of when will he. You have to have that in your life. So the, the fourth way that the enemy attacks us is isolation, and I'm, I'm wrapping up right now. The, the fifth way, real quickly, I'm going to go through it real quickly, is lust. Now in the passage in verse 9, it says, Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers um, around the world, or in the world, the, the verse says. Now, in this passage, Peter is not talking about lust, okay? He's not. <clears throat> and so th this is more anecdotal than expositional from this text. Um, I, men, he, Peter's not talking about lust here, but he is talking about something that every man in the world struggles with. In this context, he's talking about persecution. We all know that every man in our world struggles um, with lust. In fact, I read this statistic back when I was um, doing um, consulting at Lifeway that about 64% of men, according to Barna Research, look at porn at least once per month. Some of you are actively flirting with someone who's not your wife. Some of you are very, very, very close to ruining your marriage because of what right now is an emotional affair. But it will always, always erode. Always. Some of you are about to allow the enemy to destroy the good things that you have in your life because you're giving in to this fifth way that the enemy attacks. And that's lust. And so what, what, what Peter says here is, 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 is get away, resist. Stand firm in the faith and resist the attacks of the enemy. Now, um, look at verse 9. He's, again, he says, resist, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brothers in the world. Now that God of all grace, verse 10, 
the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore you. He'll personally restore you, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little. To him, be the dominion forever and ever. So maybe you're here tonight, and one of these five things, you'd say, man, I struggle with that one more than the rest of them. Maybe you're like me, and you hear those and go, dude, I struggle with all those. (laughs) Like, all of those are me, just at different times of my life. What Peter's saying here, out of his experience, having been restored by Jesus, is you you might have suffered a little bit in your sin, but what Jesus wants to do is he wants to give you the grace of personally restoring you, of of making the parts of you that were dead alive again. In fact, I want to show you that I saw a pastor do this a few years ago, and I I love this illustration. Um, I used to live in California for just a little while, and there's an area out there... um, called um, Death Valley. And, and Death Valley looks like this most of the time. It's dead, it's cracked, it's dry. Nothing alive there. Everything that symbolizes death. But something amazing happened back in like 2005. And the amazing thing that happened was it came an incredible rainstorm. Something that was like an, an abnormal weather event that had like never happened before. And, and what happened was something that they called the massive bloom. And I want to show you what happened to this death valley that, that looked and reeked and smelled of death after incredible rain came. Look what happened. Death valley went from being dead to being alive. It's amazing. It's just amazing. And I think this is what Peter's saying in this passage. He's saying the dead parts of you that look dry and cracked and broken and messed up, where we've given in to sin, or we've allowed the enemy to attack in these areas, Jesus wants to personally make those parts of you alive again. He wants to personally restore you. And so, brothers, we've got a couple of days together here, right? And I want you to ask yourself. The band's going to come back. You guys, wherever you are, you can go ahead and come on back and, and lead us in a song as we respond. I just want you to ask yourself this. What part of my life, what part of my heart, what part of my soul is the Lord trying to make alive again? What parts of me has the enemy stolen away and killed that the Lord wants to make make alive again? That he wants to bloom, that he wants to bring beauty from ashes, that he wants to bring life from what's dead. What area of my life? I want to ask you to pray about that throughout the weekend. And we're just going to see what the Lord...